This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Kabir Chopra, the co-founder and chief product officer at Burrow. What I love about retail is that it's an escape. You know, a nicely done store can take you millions of miles or back in time or forward in time. It's just something that's so surreal to your everyday life, though it has to be well done. I mean, just taking an example here, you know, Rebecca from Warby Parker, uh, their stores are just amazing. Every store is so unique and different. One on uh, Green Street, for example, takes me to the 1920s era when I'm putting on my glasses and reading a newspaper on the subway. So I think it's that effect it has on people's mindset that uh, really amazes me. Some of the greatest companies have come from solving a need the founders had themselves. There must be a better way. Fast-growing direct-to-consumer furniture brand Burrow is one of them. When a co-founder couldn't get what he wanted, when he wanted, he and his partners created a company that did things differently, including tapping into existing delivery services like FedEx and UPS in an industry where this just wasn't being done. Coming up, you'll hear how growing this company wasn't about following a path of interest, but instead it was about solving a problem. The way Burrow developed new, advantageous, and game-changing paths to supply chain. And why really listening to the customer has resulted in some of the best product ideas. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hi, my name is Rebecca Fitz. I'm here with Chris. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Good beer? (laughs) Uh, I'm great. Thanks for asking. Great. So um, kind of big picture. Um, There is a lot going on in furniture right now. Um, And I kind of know this from um, the real estate side. So furniture is really doing well as far as developers seeing folks go into spaces why do you think that is? Just your your general thoughts on it. What's going on in the world of furniture? Yeah, I think uh, we've seen a lot of movement in the space. You know, wh- whether that be offline in stores or online. Um, and I think the movement that's been started by direct to consumer brands in the last five to ten years, you know, starting with the mattresses to tables to legs, things like that. I think that's just all evolving into this bigger category that's furniture. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's inherent in furniture is that you do need to touch, see, and feel. And that translates really well into spaces. Um, and at the same time, you're seeing that more traditional retail stores, the big box stores, or brands that just haven't innovated or evolved in the last five, 10 years are giving up their spaces. So on one hand, you have this new type of business that's looking for retail space. On the other hand, you have people with leases that they can't afford. Uh, And so I think it just makes so much uh, sense and synergy uh, for those two to meet. Right. It really is timely, by the way. We had a nice discussion today about, you know, retail is not dead. It's not going anywhere. It's just really changing. And it's it's leaving room for all these really cool brands to come in and, and do their thing. So yeah, I mean, I, I just think the expectation from the customers evolved so much, right? Like, they don't simply go, and I know I just said this a minute ago, to just touch, see, and feel, but they go there to do so much more, which is experience the brand. Like, yes, on a website or on Instagram, this is what the brand sees. It's what it shows or feels like. But 
if I want to experience the brand, the only true way of doing that is going in store. Uh, and so that's that's what the customers want from stores now. Right. Um, well, we just talked a little bit that um, we're neighbors brand wise um, on Green Street. How's your experience been? Um, you know, first store is always really interesting. I'm, you know, part of something where we're now quite quite a ways down the road. But um, I think it's always fascinating about, you know, what you learn, how it's been, all those other things, highs and lows. Would love to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, so very new process for us. Right. And like the most difficult thing was. How do you take this online brand that people know and love and translate it into a physical space? Um, the other side of that was we knew we wanted to make it really experiential for people to come and experience things and do things apart from just uh, seeing furniture. I think we uh, we probably went a little too far into the experiential up front uh, and started focusing on, on a lot of things that were... Um, I guess a little further away from the core of the business, which is experience, experiencing the sofa itself in natural environments. Instead, we were creating more unique, fun experiences that were more general. So I think that was the lesson we learned pretty quickly. And in fact, we've evolved our store already in the first few months to have more vignettes and living rooms where people uh, who have different style preferences or taste preferences can go and see what a bar sofa looks like in those unique environments. So the definition of experience for us has shifted a little bit. Interesting. You're not going to take the theater away, though. No, the theater <laughs> will always stay. I think there's no better environment to test the sofa than watching a movie with the lights off. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, very cool. When you say direct-to-consumer, I automatically think digital native. Like, it's in my brain, it just connects, right? And that could be just my perception of things. And then you talk about being experiential. So those two things sort of are at odds with one another. How do you, How do you connect that? online like how can you create experience online as you're building out a retail presence as you're building out brick and mortar yeah i mean i, I think i agree with you with that even to me direct to consumer and digitally native are sort of one and the same right like we our first few thousand customers or first hundred or whatever it is come from that online brand i think what that does is really help establish the brand uh you know you may have an idea as a founder of what what brand you want to build and create but it's your first 100 or 1,000 customers that really define what that looks like to the rest of the world, to the next 10,000 customers. Um, I think once you have all that feedback and really know what your brand is about, that's when you can take take that and actually put it into a more practical use. Um, and I think a, a good example for us is uh, the type of customers we served. You know, we had a pretty big assumption early on that 99% of our sofas would be sold to uh, people living in cities and high-rise condos, things like that, right? As the business has evolved, we've learned that about more than half the customers are coming from uh, suburban areas, you know, people living in homes, things like that. And so the way we showcase our living rooms, the way we showcase our sofas and furniture, um, that needs to reflect who our audience is. So we need to make sure that uh, the spaces we build, the retail spaces, uh, are reflective of that. And also in our online efforts, in our uh, you know, paid social efforts, um, uh, podcast buys, things like that, we're all addressing the right audiences and not just focusing on who we thought our first customer was. How do you process that data? Like, it's interesting to me that you, and, and I would think the same thing. I mean, naturally, I would think, oh, we're going to talk to city dwellers. Um, they're the ones that would be the perfect audience. But then how, how do you actually digest that information? Like, 
what is it what signals were you picking up other than geography like oh these people are you know in westchester or somewhere outside of chicago like are there any other signals that you guys are seeing that's leading you towards those audiences or is there anything that you think is was a surprise to you in terms of the data other than like they're suburban like these people are rural or there's we should change the way does it go into your design process yeah so i mean uh, i think one of the biggest surprises was uh, we assumed our audience was a little younger so let's say you know uh, mid to late 20s uh, early 30s at most uh, what we've seen is it's actually the late 20s to the late 30s uh, so someone more uh, evolved in where they are in life, uh, a little bit more mature. Uh, that was a pretty big surprise to us coming from the data. Um, but how we picked up on those signals, um, obviously the geography helped, like the zip codes, things like that. But we're also working with extensive data partners uh, that can help us understand those addresses and the email addresses, the phone numbers. When you link them back into um their algorithms, you can pick up number of children, how big the household is, average uh, income. So all those signals tend make us uh, tend to believe that those households are actually uh, larger than what we thought they were. And does that play on um, Borough Labs as well? Or is Borough Labs more qualitative than quantitative? Um, Borough Labs is I would say a bit of both, um, mostly qualitative, um, qualitative in the fact that we collect a lot of free form feedback. So, you know, we obviously do the, the NPSs, the CSATs, but uh, we believe in, believe in designing uh, our products to adapt to our customers' lives, which is why labs is so important to us because it's one of the few ways where customers can voice their opinions about what they like about a product, what they hate about the product, and what we can do to change it. Um, so we just launched a uh, a new collection called the Nomad Collection. Uh, Design-wise, it's you know similar to the original collection, but we've made so many internal updates to the Silva in terms of how it comes together, how it's assembled, how it's manufactured, uh, all based on customer feedback. Um, and this is this may sound uh, frivolous, but our low arm sofa apparently wasn't low enough or soft enough on the arm where you could rest your head on it. So we had to lower it by two inches and curve the inside of the arm. doesn't sound frivolous at all. That sounds actually really important. I'm vertically challenged, but I've uh, definitely laid on some couches where I'm like, this is not aligned right at all. Yeah, and you know, it's something I don't do. It doesn't. It's not something my co-founder or my product team does on a day-to-day basis, but we have customers who do that and it's important to them. And so I think just... Having that labs experience uh, put the feedback into product and then back into brand and marketing uh, really completes that full circle for us. Yeah, I run product too at my company. And so it's interesting, like what you just said is like the the one thing I think every product manager has to walk in every single day and go, it's not about what I think. It's what about our customers think. And I do, I see that. It's not frivolous at all. That's really important to um, a couch and probably why I hit my couch right now. I need to go to Borough <laughs> and check it out. So, I know a guy. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. There's a store somewhere in New York City. Um, you, So you're co-founder, meaning there is at least one other person who started the company with you. I'm just curious, like, how did this all come about? How did, how did Borough start? Ooh, yeah. So um, unfortunately, a few years ago, I had to go through the ordeal of buying furniture. Um me and my co-founder separately, we both moved down to Philadelphia for business school. Um, 
he went the Ikea route to buy a sofa. Uh, so I know where the Ikea is in Philadelphia, too. It's, yeah, it's not, not an easy experience. No, it's not. So he rented a U-Haul, um, went to Ikea, picked up, I don't know, like six, seven boxes that were oddly shaped, put it into the U-Haul, came back home, spent three hours with an Allen wrench, still assembling it, uh, pulled the covers on with Velcro. And I think to this day, he's still scarred by that memory. <laughs> um me on the other hand, I think I'm physically scarred by assembling IKEA hey, furniture. That's that's why it's a uh, true relationship test, right? Like if you can assemble IKEA furniture together, you're you're together for life. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, I wanted to act a little bit more mature. You know, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like 27 now. Like I'm gonna get married soon. I want to buy like good real furniture. So I walk into a local West Elm, and uh, I'm like, okay, like uh, I like this gray couch. How much is it? You know, obviously. Fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars, something like that. Uh, more than I would pay previously, but I'm like you know what, I'm gonna make this decision. Wait for it to go on sale. Pull, almost pull the trigger because I find out during checkout that it's another three hundred dollars to ship it. Um, and the store is three blocks away from my house, um, and that it would take twelve weeks. So I'm doing the math here, which is I'm here for about fifteen months. Uh, then I moved back to New York. So I'm not going to wait three months for a sofa. I'm like, what else, What other options do you have? They had a red color, a brick red color sofa, kind of burnt, burnt orange, which was not the gray I wanted. But I was like, you know, I'll take this. Uh, and to save the $300 on shipping, I took a cart from my building, took it to West Elm, and then went through the back, put the sofa on the cart, and took it home. It fell twice on the way, but I saved 300 bucks. So I think just putting both our stories together, which is you either go like really cheap, flimsy, inexpensive, or you go like uh, expensive, heavy, and not very versatile. Uh, there's no middle ground, right? There's nothing that gives you high quality or convenience or value. Um, and at the same time, I had bought a mattress online, which arrived at my doorstep in a box, got there before I got to Philadelphia, which is like, this is amazing. Um, so that's sort of how the story happened of Burrow. And we, uh, we were talking about our experiences over a beer while, uh, working for a class, uh, called introduction to entrepreneurship. So it was just a random number of things coming together. I was talking about problems and saying, Hey, what, like, why don't we do this? Uh, we didn't have any furniture experience at all though. So it was quite in interesting going through that. So what was the, how, how do you how do you do your 101 in furniture entrepreneurship like what what is what does that involve what is the first step yeah i think for us we we realized that uh we needed to create like a value wedge right uh how do you sell something that's typically $2000 for a fraction of the price um so we started doing some reverse engineering and found uh, cost engineering and found out that the biggest factor there was shipping um so Figured out a couch, a decent couch costs about four or five hundred dollars to ship. Materials and manufacturing is another four or five hundred dollars, and the rest is retail markup. We're like, hey, if we can cut that four or five hundred dollars and do it for a hundred bucks, you know, we can put all of that into quality, reduce the price for customers, and hence create a space for ourselves. Um, easier said than done because a mattress can just be compression sealed, whereas a sofa is wood, Cannot. metal, all these crazy things, but. That was the idea. Uh, and then we sort of liked the math. And then we um, we started talking to companies that or factories that would do this for us. 
unfortunately, no one in the U.S., no manufacturer was willing to take up that challenge. They said, why would you put high-quality materials into a box and ship it? Like, Ikea, there's Ikea, which is cheap, and that's how it should be done. We're like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, people are changing the way they buy. They're changing the way they want to consume. Everyone wants everything in two two days. Everyone wants prime shipping. Uh, so to them, that concept was totally lost. Luckily, um, we we had a friend from Mexico, uh, and she was uh, somehow connected to some furniture manufacturer there. So we got on Skype with this guy who just took over a factory in Mexico and uh, uh, started prototyping down in Mexico City. Yeah, I mean, that's really how it started. It, you know, it, beyond that, we got the help of some uh, product specialists, physical product specialists and agencies from New York to come fly down and help uh, create the patents and the mechanisms. But uh, in terms of our knowledge, like that's sort of where it ended. A friend from Mexico. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Great. Amazing. So uh, we have a, a little tradition here on the show where we have uh, folks bring in uh, a snack, and uh, it's a very exciting part of it. So um, I'd love to hear what you brought us today. Yeah, why don't I show it to you guys? I think I'm a little scared about this one. <laughs> Are you really? I'm I excited. Am. I think I am. Ready, guys? Oh, yeah. The big reveal. And cottage cheese. Uh-huh. So, so please explain why cottage cheese. Yeah, so became a fan of cottage cheese around the time I started Burrow. Um, I was always into a lot of like a fitness, going to the gym, playing sports. Unfortunately, Burrow didn't afford me the time to do the same. And at the same time, I was getting married. So I was like, okay, gotcha. can't exercise, need to work in the business, also need to get, look good for the wedding. So... This seems like a very 1970s version of like a diet, you know, like well, you have, did you have cantaloupe with it too? And <laughs> Well, I was trying this new fad. It's like carb backloading, you know, random stuff. But essentially, you need a lot of fat and a lot of protein. Is this keto? Kind of, yeah. Keto yeah, high and protein. Keto and then you binge once a week. All right. Um, I don't know if that's an excuse or it's a real thing. But so started with... Uh, me finding foods that could fit that diet and cottage cheese was just scored so highly that I had to try it. And what do you think? It's you great. St- Love it. Creamy, great texture. Do you, it's you kind have of fond a, memories of cottage cheese? Then, I, really? I do. It started okay. the business for me, basically. There we go. So it's it's kind of kind of my baby. It's um, been my partner. Texturally, I just am struggling. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny though, right? Because. At the office, we basically have three people who like cottage cheese and everyone else who hates it. So for me now, it's almost about like just having it. So other people just look at me funny and just make that face. Uh, So it's, you know, become kind of like a uh, kind of like a symbol of my uh, rebelism. I love it. We we had gummy bears, but those are far more, uh, I think, uh, democratic <laughs> I say, in terms of likes and uh, yeah. And I feel like it probably the snack sways more sweet than savory, so we're getting savory today, Absolutely. which I'm I'm impressed. With. I'm willing to try. All right, because I haven't. You don't. Had this you guys don't have thirty years. This wasn't this. This has been refrigerated, right? Yeah. Okay. Fresh. Chris, right. you're really getting. Uh... All right. I've not had this in probably thirty years. Mmm. Mm. Right? 110 calories. That's exactly how I remembered it. <laughs> You're like, I'm done. It's like chunky yogurt. Up next, why really listening to the customer has resulted in some of the best product ideas. 
keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes wherever the best podcasts are found. Kadir, thank you for bringing in cottage cheese. Uh, it's exactly how I remembered it. Um, but surprisingly better than I remember it. I mean, it's, it's texturally, it's exactly what I remember, but taste-wise better. Hey, I'm a big uh, cottage cheese champion. I try to spread the love where I can. And, and I have to say, I'm on the high-protein thing, so it fits right in with, with my eating. And actually, I've not done this brand or plain, so I'm embracing it. Is all there the another way. brand other than Breakstone's cottage cheese? Does anybody else make oh, cottage cheese? Oh, you know, it's gotten, you know, there's a, another brand for everything. Hey, it's a, it's a high-risk game, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to mess around, but glad I could convert one out of two. Listen, I live in Brooklyn, so I'm sure there's an artisanal cottage cheese oh, maker somewhere in Red Hook that I could be trying um, this weekend. <laughs> yeah, probably a uh, hundred dollars an ounce. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, Kabir, the, the the foundation of the company seems to be you figured out a way to differentiate the shipping of a couch. You you figured out a way to crack a code that a West Elm or someone else hasn't been able to figure out. So, tell me about that. You tapped into something that didn't exist before and built the company around it. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at your traditional retail furniture retailers, everyone ships an entire sofa, right? That arrives typically through a third-party freight or courier that comes in this truck, promises you that they'll be there between 9 to 5 and they show up at 6 p.m., um, that never happens. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and then you find out it doesn't fit in your elevator or through your hallway or door. And so a lot of barriers uh, into getting that sofa there. I'm sure you've... An anecdote. So my first uh, apartment in New York, in Brooklyn, was a garden apartment. It had to go through a wrought iron gate. And I had to find a company that knew how to disassemble the furniture to get sofa it into doctor. my apartment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. The so I, I did, before living in New York City, I had no idea that that existed. Um, yeah. I mean, so it, it was pretty clear to us that, like... Shipping a whole sofa just didn't make sense, not only from an economic standpoint, but also from a customer experience standpoint, right? Um, you typically have to call on your friends to take out your old sofa, put in a new sofa, and like you owe them favors, pizza, whatnot, or you hire a mover. Um, and like the way the cus our customers are evolving today, right? The people in their 20s are moving every one in three years. Um, actually, 33% of them move every year. And so just that evolution of the customer mindset has changed so much separately they also expect things to ship like for free and fast you know two-day shipping is table stakes um so sort of all those factors indicators told us that we need to figure out a better way to ship this um so somehow working through you know dozens of prototypes we figured out a way to reverse engineer and put it into boxes that fit into uh what nationwide couriers such as UPS and FedEx call dimensional guidelines. It's basically the biggest size that you can ship a box for uh, a relatively uh, inexpensive uh, cost. And so um, that was sort of the aha moment for us, right? Figuring out that we can use this giant nationwide network overnight and basically ship anywhere from uh, Texas to Seattle. Uh, I know that's a state and a city, but um, shipping anywhere across the United States for a fraction of the cost. Um, so what that allowed us to do, obviously, apart from improving the customer experience by providing something that's cheaper and better quality, uh, shipping it for fast and for free. Uh, but on the back end, 
because the sofa was shipping in essentially three to four boxes that you assemble without any tools, just use your hands. We were able to carry so much inventory of just those, just these individual boxes. So um, if you think about traditional retailers, they'll carry dozens and thousands of SKUs of uh, different types of sofas. Um, and they're not very nimble with that inventory. For us, we carry inventories of uh, just the seats or the arms. So if a customer wants a four-seater, we grab four seats, a set of arms, and uh, ship that out. So our 35, 40 SKUs, whatever we have uh, at the base level, really create thousands of combinations for the customer. It's amazing. It's almost like you 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 figured out that in between the IKEA and the West Elm. Like that is exactly it. The The convenience of having this not flat pack shipping, but something akin to that, to having something that is custom made for you and, and you know, uh, high quality, already assembled or easily assembled. Exactly. Um, and like for, for us, the, the litmus test was putting our sofa and another sofa next to each other and asking people like, oh, do you think any of these came out of a box? And not being able to tell is, uh, I think that's proof in, the, in itself, right? Apart from the sort of the warehousing aspect of it, um, the the boxes also allowed us to uh, freight forward and create a distribution network that uh, was a lot cheaper than traditional distribution methods. Uh, think about putting you know sofas into a container versus putting boxes. We were able to get so much more efficiencies than um, the traditional traditional methods. Congratulations. You have another store open I saw in Fulton Market. And I understand. And by the way, I love that area as well. I looked at it for Warby. It's super, super cool. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about one, how you you came upon that place. But also, I understand that this store is going to operate a little differently than the New York store. Yeah. So in terms of uh, geographies, why why we chose Chicago uh, as our next place, for us, it's been our second fastest growing audience, um, which uh, it's it's not um, it's not really one of the cities that you typically hear, you know, from a New York, San Francisco, LA standpoint. You typically, hear those, but I think our product lends itself to uh, larger homes as well, and um, it's I think Chicago itself is also a pretty big retail market, sorry, yeah. apartment rental market. Yeah, and it's uh, but it's got the burbs pretty close by, so I can see now exactly. that you've talked about why that would be. Yeah, so it, it's a mix of audiences for us there, as opposed to just a single type of audience. Mm -hmm. I think the learnings we'll also get from Chicago are uniquely different from those that we see in uh, New York. Um, and it, in terms of how that store operates differently, um, we're. The New York store, while well, it's essentially our flagship store, right? It's uh, it started out is as a experiential store. The goal wasn't really to sell, but in fact to in increase the brand awareness in the market about borough. Um, so it's really a showroom. I can't go there and I can leave with a couch, but that I that I ordered online. Exactly. Um, Chicago is is also similar in that manner, where it's a showroom, but it's more focused towards creating. Uh, more of the homier type vibe. Uh, so the larger homes and the silhouettes and the vignettes that we create there are more focused towards that type of audience as opposed to the New York audience. So, it, it, you know, it's it, there are nuanced differences, but for us, it's a test to see what uh, what that type of audience consumes and if, uh, you know, borrow something that uh, is likable to them. 
you, yeah. You'll, yeah, absolutely. And it's a pop-up, so it's a short-term. It's not a long-term lease as of the moment. Uh, yeah, it's a short-term lease. Yeah. So it's uh, experimentation for us um, as well, knowing what areas to live in. Uh, it's interesting because in a lot of cities, you see furniture stores all aggregate together, mm -hmm. uh, which we have a different thesis on. I think if you're making a customer come all the way out to see you in a specific area, you better have something else for them to do apart from looking at furniture, right? Like you want to be in areas where there's food, drinks, um, entertainment. I think it just feels like that's the right thing for us to entertain our audiences. Right, right. And site selection, I think, has really um, changed as well. It's not the model of all restaurants need to buy around restaurants. It's, you know, what are people shopping for that are kind of like-minded and, and going into the same places. Exactly. I think neighborhoods are reflecting people's mindsets now. Right. And Fulton Market is certainly a, a cool, yeah. cool neighborhood. So if e-com is still where you guys are focused on in terms of sales, and obviously seems to, seems to be the bread and butter of of sales, if, if the, the the stores or locations are experiential in nature, how are, how are you guys expanding that? Like, how how what is your growth strategy in e-com? Is it to you know how how do you get out there and market to new folks? What what channels are the ones that you're like? These are the ones that are the 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 best for us to to drive the growth plans that we have in place. Honestly, I think the best strategy for online growth is offline growth. Okay, right? Like when we opened up our New York store, we saw our conversion rate increase by a hundred percent in New York. Uh, we knew it would have some sort of effect, but seeing that type of effect was unheard of, at least in our circles. And I think it's the category specifically, furniture itself. Yes, you know, we're doing well online, but having that true unified experience online and offline in a place where people can make a decision online, but go check it out offline uh, is, is, I think, a really good path for us to move forward with. And similar with Chicago, I think, we were hoping to see similar results in that uh, space. And the strategy moving forward will be to replicate that success across different cities in the U.S. Yeah. And how do you guys envision scaling that out? Is it is it specific locations, specific geographies? Is it at some point you're going to walk into um, or go into any sort of like, like I'm thinking of Kinney in L.A. or some like very concentrated retail um, section and then, oh, there's there's a borough. Um, is that the plan? Uh, well, I, I think we we have to be very selective about our sites. Uh, going, you know, back to some of our earlier comments, like we know who our customer is, we know where they live, we know where they shop, eat, and I think being very specific and thoughtful about where you're opening your next store, like it's your first store, is the strategy we want to take. Um, yes, it may be uh, more efficient to have this sort of nationwide rollout strategy. But if we want to see that consistent online, offline growth work together, uh, I think being very, very thoughtful and uh, disciplined about um, following your customers is key and not just opening where other furniture retailers are. How important is it for you to be next to Warby Parker? I think so far we've done a pretty good job. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. <laughs> you recreate that across. There's a Warby Parker yeah, just, and there's a Burrow. It's the easiest way to do it. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it is interesting what's going on and, you know, without, you know, us having to sign an NDA, um, you know, you're 
it seems like people think all direct consumer brands should be together, but it's not necessarily they have to kind of, you know, reflect each other. And, um, you know, Warby Parker is really kind of in a daily needs, but I do think we generate traffic and it's probably some like mindedness there, too. But um, where brands are looking and how they're looking and how it kind of differs from what legacy brands did, I think, is really interesting and probably sim- similar mindsets. Um, yeah, and even store performance, right? Like, you, you, yes, uh, sales per square foot is really important, but I think just ensuring that the store is not just a store, but it's also what's affecting your online. Like, I know I've said that a couple of times today, but that is so big for us, especially in these early stages. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it's big for you guys as well. Right. And there's a lot of interesting things going on, too. I'm sure you think about them. If you're measuring them, that would be fascinating. But, you know, how do you change it up? Because it's not really just about, you know, the price or, you know, the sales per square foot and or how many bays of glasses that I have in there. It's, you know, how how else can I measure that space and kind of goes to the omni channel conversation. But also, you know, what is the value of your store? How do you measure that? How do you measure the impact of New York? I mean, I, I get that there's some sort of impact. I, I open up a store and I get more sales in New York. But how how do you how how are you using any tools to do that outside of just sort of quantitative? Oh, sorry, qualitative measures. Like I got more sales because we opened up the store. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so the way we've been looking at our data is uh, we sort of isolate. Luckily for us, because New York was the only city that had a store, we could isolate the rest of the data given our marketing and ad spend across those different cities and see what the lift was in the same sort of time period, right? Um, in absolute terms, you know, we grew 100% in our conversion rate in New York, but even compared to the same time period against other cities, the conversion rate was a lot higher than the other cities. Gotcha. And, so, and and how does your marketing, like, like do you, are you guys applying a specific marketing message when you're, you're trying to connect those? Like, so Chicago, you open up a location, even if it's not a long term. Um, how, how are you directing people either into the store location and then vice versa? Once they're in store, how are you trying to connect the, the sort of marketing experience online? Yeah. So it's sort of threaded throughout our ecosystem, you know, from the time you get on site, if you're in New York City, we'll we know you're in New York City, and so the messaging on our banner is going to be, hey, come check out Borough House. Um, apart from the website itself that directs you, we also have uh, events at Borough House, whether it's New York or Chicago. What we do is uh, sync up with like-minded brands um, or popular local brands that people already know of and love and try to engage the audiences through their, through there uh, to get them into the offline and then eventually into the online uh, even in terms of some of the uh, paid social, paid search work we do, uh, we have uh, we put we put some effort behind getting people in store first because uh, that's also a great conversion path for us. Especially if we know that that audience is uh, more prone to buying at a certain point in time. So um, how have things changed uh, since day one? And it's always interesting to see trajectories of of companies. So I'm sure, you know, for Warby, day one, we're now in year nine. um, And I know things have changed uh, a a lot in between there. So what's changed for you? Yeah, I mean, we started with a really simple mission, right? We had personal experiences buying furniture and trying to buy a sofa was difficult. So we're like, let's make this easy. 
that was it. And, you know, very simple brand ethos, make furniture buying easy because it doesn't need to be this hard in this day and age. Um, for us at that point, we believed that customers are doing everything online, hence they should only be shopping online, um, you know, which is obviously different from where we are today. We've opened up two stores now. Um, so that's that's been a drastic departure. But once we got into the furniture industry and started making these products, we just realized how many inefficiencies there were, not just, you know, in making sofas, but everything, just that entire process of how people, how manufacturers and retailers think about furniture, the, the way they operate today is let's make furniture that we can make and sell it to people. Uh, we realized that we can make furniture that adapts to what people's needs are. And that just doesn't apply for the sofa, right? With the sofa, it the big thing there was that we figured out a way to make it easy to buy it, ship it, move it, expand it, so you don't have to compromise on quality, convenience, or price. Uh, when we are now thinking about the living room or the entire home, there are so many categories that we can go into where there are so many problems. And the way we approach it is by leveraging our existing customer base and asking them, hey, what's what's the biggest problem with your coffee table today? Or what's the biggest problem with your TV cabinet? What can we do to fix it? Um, so that I think that departure from just being focused on single product to realizing that we can a approach this industry in a very fresh uh, way has, uh, has been a seismic change for us. Amazing. And without us signing an NDA, could you uh, give us any specifics on what it might be? Or, or are we going to keep it there? Um, let's just say we're going to take over the entire home eventually, starting with the living room. Excellent. World domination. I like yeah, it. Basically. <laughs> Borough kitchen. <laughs> you know, I, w I wouldn't put it past us. Up next, things get personal with Kabir, and you'll hear how his wife and co-founder are so much alike. Entrepreneurista, a woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive, forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. Through the conversations on the Entreprenista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entreprenista podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entreprenistapodcast.com. Uh, so, Kabir, it's, um, we're going to Barbara Walters you. It's time to get to know you. Uh, we won't make you cry, though, I don't think. Um, I I'm always curious, and uh, just seeing you in the physical, are you of Indian descent? Or I'd love to hear where, where you're from and uh, maybe where you grew up. I think it's fascinating. It always kind of plays into how you got where you got. Yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, so uh, you are right. I was born in India, born in New Delhi, actually. And um, when I was five, my parents moved to Bahrain, which is a tiny island uh, in the Middle East, uh, sort of surrounded by the Arabian Sea. 
there is a U.S. naval base there, so mm. you know, there's there's that. Um, so I was in Bahrain, very uh, sort of sheltered life. Uh, it's kind of a weird East meets West kind of uh, place. Uh, you have all the facilities of the West, and uh, you have a lot of people there from the East. So it was kind of like growing up in India, but also kind of like growing up in the U.S., uh, obviously, watch all the good, great TV shows, Friends, all of that. Um, You're selling it. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it's hey, it's tax free. <laughs> tax free fuel is thirty cents a liter. Sorry, that's a dollar a gallon. Um, and um, yeah, so when I was seventeen, uh, left Bahrain to uh, go to school in uh, in Montreal. Um, McGill. Was, yeah, McGill. So went from about hundred and twenty degree weather. To the Montreal winter, which that year was negative forty, uh, so it was quite quite the uh, new experience for me. So yeah, I went to McGill, uh, did uh, computer engineering there, uh, spent four years. Great city, you know. In the summer, it's unbeatable, but the winter, you probably want to be somewhere else. Yeah. Um, spent four years there, and then got a job in Toronto, uh, where I uh, worked as a software developer for about a year. And then went into consulting and big data, business intelligence, uh, but always want was itching to do something else. And so through my hat, when my friend was starting this payment system, uh, mobile payment system where you go into a store and it essentially uh, checks you out without you having to even take your phone out, um, did that for about a year and then moved to New York uh, because actually this is interesting. So. I've been married now for about three years. Uh, I met my wife in high school in Bahrain, um, and that when I went gasp. to yeah, and I, when I went to Montreal, she went to Houston uh, to Rice, uh, and then she moved to Dallas. When I moved to Toronto, then she moved to New York, and then she was like, "Okay, we've done long distance now mm -hmm. for eight years. You need to move to New York." Uh, and that is when I moved to New York and worked at Michael Kors just before business school. I love um, it. So after, yeah, after which I started borrow. So you came for a girl. Basically, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> a woman, there I is there's always someone else behind your success, and that is she. Awesome. Awesome. It's a, there's always a story. I love it. Yeah. She had just a little detour in Philly. <laughs> yeah, just a little, which was important, I guess, for yeah, yeah. borrow. Yeah. True. Yeah. 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 So I keep going back to co founder. Um, you obviously have a marriage with your wife. Um, you have a marriage with a business partner. You had a product. How, how did how did this all happen? Like, what what did, what made you co-founder and head of product? Yeah. So um, Stephen and I had actually met when I was at McGill one random night. So he his uh, one of his best friends growing up, Fanny. If you're listening to this. Um, she, she was on the same dorm floor as me, uh, floor four. Uh, and there was a, uh, I think it was a New Year's Eve party and we were playing beer pong and Fanny's like, oh, this is my friend, Stephen played beer pong one night, thought nothing about it. Fast forward, uh, gosh, like seven, eight years later, uh, we're both at business school. She sends us a message on Facebook. Uh, so thank you, uh, Facebook saying, Hey, you both are at business school. You guys should meet each other. And we're at this Hawaiian-themed rooftop party uh, when she sends a message. So we're like, hey, we're both here. Let's send her a selfie. Um, you know, that was that. And 
we're like, oh, we're in the same class. We should just go grab a beer or something. And that's when we started talking about Burrow. So that's how the idea started. And that's how we met. Why I'm the product, chief product officer, is because I've always had this passion for uh, technology, brand, and retail. Like, just the, I think the magic behind how something can make you feel that isn't really real. You know, when you say uh, Nike or Burrow or, you know, Warby Parker, you're all evoking feelings. I think that magic is something that's intrigued me. And having a background as an engineer, um, I've always wanted to see, like, how you can take brand, retail, technology, and sort of combine them together. So for me, direct, uh, direct native vertical brands just always seem like the obvious choice. How is the relationship? Is it is so? It... It, it's so funny, but Stephen is exactly like my wife. <laughs> they both have consulting backgrounds. They both have the same type of attitude. They both worry about the same types of things, uh, and I think it just works because he is kind of the opposite of me, and opposites attract. Um, the skills he has, I don't, and the skills I I have, he doesn't. So it just made for a happy work marriage as well. I actually think that's the way most successful businesses run is you have the complementary skill sets and attitude and the yin and yang of, of, of different folks. So it's good to hear that you have an interesting that they share the same personality. Yeah, I'm sure it's, that's it's great weird. for your wife. But it's kind of <laughs> like... It explains why you're attracted to both of them in different ways, obviously. But, you know, it's yeah, kind of it's, lovely. It also makes me feel sometimes at work that I'm at home because I see them do the same neurotic things, scratch their head, do this or that. I'm just like, oh, man, I need to tell them both to stop. You're going to need therapy. Yeah, yeah. So um, we always love to wrap up the show on um, asking you if you have any uh, final thoughts that you'd like to share, whether that's about the business, about being an entrepreneur, um, just something you want to send out into the uh, the world. It may be cheesy, but um, don't don't do something don't do something that you can do. Do something that people want, right? If your idea is revolved around something that, yes, you're really good at it, and you know you can do it inherently, but so can you know hundreds and thousands of other people. But if you're uniquely positioned and can think about people and customers in a way where you identify this unique issue, you know, such, such as the Warby guys like Neil and David did. Like it's, they they were in a situation just like me and Stephen where we're like, this sucks, man. Like, can we change it? Why right. is there no one making, uh, doing something about this? He went through a semester with no glasses. I can't even imagine. <laughs> and I, I think it's that attitude, right? Like most people think that it's beyond them to achieve something that no one else has done before because it hasn't. But once you get into it, it's not that hard. I mean, yes, you spend your life and like you, it becomes your work. But I think what what better way of working than making it part of your life? So don't doubt yourself that you can't do it. I think anyone and everyone has it in it uh, in them to move move things forward and make it a better world for everyone else. Kabir, if people want to get in touch with you, how what what is the best way to reach you? Uh, yeah, I think. Um, you know, just go visit our website. That's www.burrow.com or uh, just hit up our inbound department at press at burrow.com. Kabir, thanks so much for being with us today. This was such a fun conversation. Chris, thanks so much. Thank for you. Thanks, Kabir. Joining. Thanks, guys. I'm Rebecca Fitz and thanks for listening. 
This has been Retail is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.